Well, if you would uh, turn in your bulletins or your own Bibles to Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read the passage aloud. This is the passage we'll look at today. And then we, are, we have a, a new congregational reading. So if you remember, we are going through the highlights of Romans, memorizing together passages of Scripture. Six weeks we spent memorizing Romans 1, 16 through 17. Today we will say together Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And if you're looking for a nifty way to memorize these passages, remember we've got these bookmarks, and I think they're always available if you should want one or if you've lost them with the passages we're memorizing this fall together as a church. If you're able, let me ask you to please stand. And the passage we're looking at this morning comes from the epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this passage aloud. This is the Word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment... Of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now let's read together or recite together Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10b. Let's read this passage together. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Amen. Please be seated. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have revealed yourself in this letter given by your spirit through the apostle Paul delivered to the church in Rome, preserved for us, your children, that we might read of our sin, but more importantly, of your marvelous grace. We ask you, Lord God, that you would show us these things to be true, that they would rest in our hearts, and that by the work of your Spirit, they would give us new life as you give us a heart that can hear and see and comprehend not only our own need, 
but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the redemption that has been worked through your Son. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we, O Lord God, might glorify you as not only our God, but as our Father and Savior. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to say that I have probably read and seen Hamlet, the play, probably a half a dozen times. But I also have to admit to you that I don't remember anything about it other than these words. To thine own self be true. To thine own self be true. And I think that is the phrase that I've taken from Hamlet because it has also become one of my own personal mantras, okay, to thine own self be true. Now, not in the sort of new age way of like understanding yourself better, and that's where truth can be found, but rather in the way of a a commendation or an encouragement to be honest with yourself. That if you're to be honest with anyone else in all of your life, you must first be honest with yourself, to have a sober judgment of yourself, not to think too highly or too lowly of yourself, to understand your own weaknesses and your own strengths and understand what that means and how to surround yourself with the right people. To thine own self be true. So that has kind of been the thing that I often encourage my children with. It's the thing when I coach sports that I am trying to impart to those I'm coaching. Be true to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Have uh, a sober understanding of you that will help you inevitably in many of the challenges that you will face in life. Now I have to tell you this morning, as the Apostle Paul begins Romans chapter 2, this is the problem that Paul's addressing, okay? Because Romans chapter 2 represents a shift in the narrative from a very universal perspective to in Romans chapter 2, Paul begins to address the Jew, the Jewish Christian, and the religious person. And they are in many ways very different than the people that he was addressing in Romans chapter 1. And really what we find as we open Romans chapter 2 is that the problem is, the Jew and the Jewish Christian and the religious person, to thine own selves have not been true. Okay? To thine own selves they have not been true. And so Paul will begin to speak to these people who have not rightly understood their own predicament and their posture or relationship with the living God. They had lived in such a way where they believed themselves to be good with God when, as a matter of fact, they weren't good with God. And so Paul will begin speaking to them in this chapter, exposing their need for the gospel when, as a matter of fact, they didn't believe they needed the gospel at all. Now, I, I believe this is a, a relevant passage then because you know, we're not, many of us, Jewish Christians and don't have a background of Judaism, but the very same problems find themselves at home in the Christian church, don't they? Right? Because those who are part of Christian churches often find some sort of right standing with God that is not actually a right standing with God at all. That they find some hope or some security, not in the right things, but in some Uh, family identity or tradition that has nothing to do really with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, you just think about it for a second as we read 
the passages of Scripture, I would be willing to bet that most of you, when you read Scripture, you find yourself to be the younger brother, the faithful servant, the, the meek follower of, of Christ, right? And then we, there's a sense of indignation when you get to the older brother and the Pharisees and the scribes and the ones who are not following the commands of God, and you don't identify at all with them, if that's true, then you really find yourself in the same shoes of the people that Paul's speaking to in Romans chapter 2, right? We, again, I'll, I'll keep emphasizing this. We, we read Romans, and if our attention immediately goes to them, we know that we have a problem, okay? Because the, the, the epistle to the Romans is for us. Now, as we open this chapter in Romans chapter 2, here's what Paul's doing, and here's the, really the two things we're going to look at this morning. Paul is moving in this epistle to a great explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, right? So this epistle to the Romans is all about an explanation of these things, but in the early chapters, Paul is clearing away the brush and the vines that have so entangled the gospel, he's clearing the junk away so that we can see the gospel for truly what it is. And in Romans chapter 2, he's really going to do a clearing work of getting rid of these preconceived notions that are not good for understanding the gospel. Okay? So today, Paul is going to clarify two misunderstandings that were prevalent within Judaism and in the early church. Okay? two misunderstandings. I'm just going to give you them, okay? Misunderstanding the law and misunderstanding the covenant. You might be wondering, why is he writing it like that, okay? I'm, I'm going to return to the analogy I gave you in week one because I believe it pays great dividends and it will continue to, to uh, uh, reap some good rewards as we think about this, okay? The epistle to the Romans is the blueprint. Paul's laying out the blueprint of salvation it's very different than other epistles which deal with a part of salvation or of uh, sanctification. The epistle to the Romans is the complete blueprint from the beginning to the end. So I told you last week in Romans 1, we were dealing with the terrain, right? That's the terrain of brokenness and sinfulness. Last week, Paul was digging, uh, the last seven weeks, Paul was digging into the terrain of the broken humanity, right? And he's digging and excavating and exposing the heart. That's the brokenness of man. Now in Romans chapter 2, we're transitioning to the laying of the foundation, which primarily happened in the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul is going to show us what the foundation was for and how it leads to and prepares for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the foundation that was laid, okay, so this is my basement. It should look like a basement a little bit, all right? This is the four walls of the basement. Two of the primary pillars of the foundation that's laid in the Old Testament are the law and the covenant. This morning in Romans chapter 2, Paul will say to the Jews, Jewish Christians, and the religious people, you have misunderstood the law, and you have misunderstood the covenant, therefore you believe yourselves to be right with God, but you are not right with God at all. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that are dealt with in the first four verses of Romans chapter 2 this morning. So let's begin first with the law. The law doesn't logically come first, the covenant does, but Paul begins with the law in Romans chapter 2, okay? So in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he begins and he says, therefore you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now you can hear all the legal phraseology that would point us to the law. There's words of judging and of judgment and of condemnation, okay? 
So when we hear these words in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, we, we know that anyone who has an idea of the law would immediately draw their attention to the law of God. And Paul's working to expose their misunderstanding of that law. So think about the law for a second. The law God reveals to His people, and we know a few things about the law. It's His righteous standard, okay? It's given uniquely to His people, and it shows what holiness is, right? That's the function of the law. Now, the problem is that those who had received the law had begun or had begun to see the law as a thing which they could live by and therefore be justified by. And so they saw the law, and what they began to do was they began to create all these cool little ways that they could follow the law, right? And so we're going to, uh, we talk about the Sabbath, and you're going to be able to walk a mile, but not more than a mile. And if you do that, then you follow the law, and you're justified before God. And, and so they began to create ways that they could build structures in their lives to follow the law, and the law became the thing that justified them. And they said, oh, okay, we're good. We are good with God because we have the law. And they believed that they could follow the law. Here's how one author put it. Primary reason the Jews believed that they were accepted was because of God's covenant with Abraham and his seed after him. They believed this promise was to secure salvation for all the seed of Abraham who remain connected to the covenant by the law and by circumcision. Now listen to this. They expected to be treated as a community accepted by God and not so much as individuals. All right? That was part of the problem. They saw that they received the law under the covenant of God. They said, we have the law. We will be treated by God as a community who has the law, therefore accepted by him. And they never, I think at some point it kind of crossed their mind that they would be treated as individuals, you know, sinners justly condemned to death. But that way of thinking had largely exited the, the group think of, of the Israelites. And now they conceived of themselves as a group who had received the law and is now good with God. We have the law, we have the covenant, we're good with God. Okay? That's the very thinking that Paul is working to expose. Again, listen to what he says. Therefore, you, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Okay? And this would have been an enlightening moment. Like, what do you mean we're condemned because we practice the same thing? Okay? They, they would have recognized that they had some of these things in their hearts. And you might be thinking, what does Paul mean by practicing the same things? He obviously doesn't mean all of chapter one, right? He doesn't mean as he speaks to the Jew and the Jewish Christian and the religious person that they're practicing this moral perversion, that they've exchanged the natural relations for unnatural ones, that they've suppressed the truth of God or they're worshiping idols. He doesn't mean that, but what he's referring to is what's happening in chapter one, verses 29 through 31. You remember that list, right? We, get, we had a list of things that are Kind of, they're things that maybe are normalized by most people. They are things that we know to be in our hearts. The list included things like malice, greed, strife, arrogance, and pride, right? That list of things where we say, oh, okay, let, like, that for many people is just like what it is to be human. Paul said in chapter 1, for those things the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And now he says in chapter 2 to the Jew, the Jewish Christian, the religious person who thinks they're living their life according to God's law, he says to them, you in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now I have to tell you, I believe there was sort of a disillusion, okay, because I believe that these uh, Jewish people that Paul speaks to, they knew they had these things in their hearts, 
but they also believed fully that having the law of God and living under the covenant of God, that they were therefore justified. And there was never this moment where they tried to reconcile these ideas like, wait a second. If we have malice, strife, greed, arrogance, pride, if we were disobedient to parents, right? If, If we have these things and they are in our hearts and we have an outward conformity to the law, but these things still remain, are we under judgment or condemnation? And just by having the law and the covenant, does that absolve us of these things? That these things hadn't quite computed. And so Paul will say to them in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape judgment for yourself? And this is like a, a light bulb moment. Do you suppose if you have these things in your heart, yeah, you have the covenant and the law, but do you suppose if you have these things that you're going to escape the judgment of God? And everyone listening should have said, okay, wait a second. Wait a second. This, this thing that we've been living according to for, for our whole lives that we believe has made us right with God, now wait a second, how does it deal with the, the sin of our heart? With the malice and greed and the arrogance and the pride and everything that Paul has just listed as he's gone through? We know that we stand under condemnation. You see, for the the person that Paul is speaking to, they would have read verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. They would have read verse 2 and they would have thought, oh yeah, that's the Gentiles. That's the people who don't have the law and the covenant. They do those things. They stand condemned. They're under the judgment of God. But when Paul brings it home and he said, wait a second, do you, you, you who stand here condemning them, do you not believe for a second that you also have the same things in your own heart? And if you have the same things in your own heart, do you not recognize that the judgment of God is coming for you as well? Do you not believe that? I was thinking about uh, how, how to kind of relate this idea. Here's an analogy or maybe a, a story you can probably all resonate with. Um, many of you have probably experienced this. You have a friend who has like a, just a blatant, obvious failure, a vice that is kind of obvious to everyone around them. And you're thinking, okay, how do I speak to them about this, okay? And maybe they're, they're arrogant or prideful, it's very obvious, or maybe they're always talking about themselves and they're never listening, okay? So you probably can all resonate. You probably have at least one person in your life who's like that. And you know that that conversation is never going to go well, right? You, you know that. And so you probably begin that conversation in a sort of like um, uh, passive third person. Let me just kind of hint at it and see if they get the hint. So you say something like this. Have you ever noticed how if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're always talking about themselves, how it's really not an enjoyable conversation? What do you think about that? Right? And that person inevitably will say something like this. Oh, yeah, I hate conversations like that. I have seen so many people like that. I've got those types of people in my life. They're, they're always talking about themselves. Okay? And you're like, okay, well, how, okay, how do I get to the point here? And then you maybe cut to the chase with a little bit more clarity and you say something like this. Well, have you ever noticed in our conversations how uh, it, it, it may feel like uh, that's happening? Have you ever noticed that? And the person probably says something like this, like, no, I don't, I've never noticed, although I have noticed how you do talk about yourself a lot, okay? Uh, but believe me, it doesn't bother me a bit, okay? You've, you've been part of those conversations, right? And you're like, okay, forget about it. We're not going to get anywhere. Um, this is the portrait of the people that Paul is speaking to who are disillusioned, right? Who, are, who have no clarity of mind when it comes to themselves, to, the, to thine own selves. They have not been true. They have not recognized their need and they have taken these pillars, which are in preparation for the coming of Christ, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. But they've taken these pillars and they have said, 
we have these things, we are good. And Paul's saying, do you really think that you're good? Do you really think that you're good? By having some outward conformity to the law, do you really think that you're good with God? Just, just stop and think about it for a second. And what Paul will do in chapter two is he will go from being very gentle to very blunt by the end of the chapter. One commentator said, hey, listen, what Paul's doing is he's wooing them in. Like, he's gonna give them a sort of gentle argument and the people are gonna listen. They'll be, oh yeah, I, I see what Paul's saying. And then, you know, boom, as I said to the the folks in staff meeting this past week, I feel like Paul's luring them in and, he's take, and then he's going to take a two by four and smack them over the head when we get into the, the later parts of chapter two. And not really, but that's how it feels as we move forward in chapter two. That the Jewish person and the, and the religious person would say, okay, I get where you're going, Paul, I get where you're going. And then boom, he, he catches them off guard and gives them this argument that's going to pierce to their hearts because they're not prepared for the way it will expose them. Uh, John Stott said, we, think about how this applies to us. John Stott said, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the dis- disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. Uh, Tim Keller, when he was preaching through this passage, he said, this chapter is a bucket of cold water poured over the head of the religious person, Okay. It like shocks you awake, doesn't it? Um, and, and as I said before, listen, if you want to f- say, is this me or is this not me and do I need to be convicted of this? We've now seven weeks in the book of Romans and if your tendency has been, as you've heard the preaching of God's word from the book of Romans, if your tendency has been, yeah, they really need to hear this, okay? If you've been walking away thinking, I've got like two or three people on mine who really need to hear this, this is for them. Um, or if you've said like, man, the world really needs to hear Romans, and you haven't first been inclined to say, this is for me, then you probably need Romans chapter two more than you know, okay? You probably need to be awakened to the condition of your own heart and the necessity of the gospel for salvation for you, and you've probably been resting and relying on the wrong kinds of things as well. Here's how Hodge put it. Listen, this is convicting. Divine judgment is according to the truth. It does not choose favorites. This reveals the error of the Jews and of moral men. They expect God to judge according to something other than the truth. Isn't that interesting? When, when, when we don't see our need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and we rest and rely on something else and we don't see our own hearts, what does it do? It expects God to judge on something else other than the truth. right? Because according to the truth, we know we stand condemned and under the judgment of God. Okay, so that's the law. This is the first point, the law. They have misunderstood the law. Second point is they have misunderstood the covenant. And listen, just a short introduction. What's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, but it's a a more severe version of an agreement. It's a a more serious version of an agreement. Um, And one author says a a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. What that means is it's a a life or death agreement. When we see covenants in Scripture, we often see these very... um, uh, gory, not gory, but bloody or severe pictures that are accompanied with them, okay? And so we often see the sacrifice of animals or the pouring out of blood. These are pictures that are meant to say, well, this is a very serious agreement. It is a life or death agreement, all right, that we're entering into. A case in point is Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God takes the animals, he splits them in half, 
And then he, he goes down between the animals and he says to Abraham, I, I make this covenant with you, right? And I will be your God and I will provide for your need. And that's a beautiful thing. I've always thought with Genesis 15, wouldn't it be interesting if somebody tried to make a, an artist's rendering of Genesis 15, okay? That wouldn't be a painting you would hang on your wall, right? Um, it would be a, a bloody mess, okay? But the picture is, is meant to communicate the severity of the agreement that God is making with his people. And it is a covenant of grace. He's saying, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. I agree to it, right? On my own life, on my own character, according to my own word, I commit to this for you. What I'm saying to you is that the, the Jews and the religious people uh, had misunderstood the covenant that God made with them. And so the covenant became a tool of abdication for the people of Israel. They abdicated their responsibilities as the people of God. That's most importantly brought out in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay? Now that's a, a very interesting sentence. Okay? Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Those three words, kindness, forbearance, and patience. If you looked at the Greek of those three words, you would see that they're all words that have to do with the, the long-suffering of God, his patient waiting, his not giving us what we deserve. To summarize, they are words that represent the mercy of God, okay? So do you presume on the mercy of God? The word presume, I think, is not the greatest translation of the word that we see here. The Greek word, compound word, kataphroneo. Kataphroneo. Kata means against Phreneo means to think, so it literally means to think against. Do you think against the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you think against it? It's meant to have a strong negative connotation. And when I think about presuming, it seems just kind of passive to me. Like, it's like you, you didn't do something wrong, but you know, it's not like you did something right. It's just kind of neutral. And so you think about this, the, the, the ESV, when the ESV, uh, sorry, not the ESV, the New American Standard says, do you think lightly of his riches? The New, the New International Version says, do you show contempt for the riches of God? And maybe the best translation, and I don't often say this, the New King James Version says, do you despise his riches? And I think that captures the force of the word. Do you despise his riches? It is an active negative word that means to, to have to be against, to be working against. Do you reject the riches of God? Do you not think highly of them? Do you have no value for them? The riches of God in his uh, forbearance, his patience, and his kindness, okay? So that's the, the idea that Paul's hammering home, essentially, in the covenant that God has with you, which is a covenant of mercy and grace. In that covenant where he has been merciful with you, do you despise his mercy? You might ask the question then, how, how had the Jews, right, how had the religious person, how had they despised the mercy of God? Well, essentially what Paul's addressing in, in their hearts is that they had taken it for granted, okay? They had said, we are Abraham's seed. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Jesus says, well, do you presume that you're good because you are Abraham's seed, okay? And that's when he says, I tell you, these rocks will cry out if you will not. Do you presume that you are Abraham's seed? Okay, and that's what they had been doing. They were resting upon the laurels of being of the genealogy of Abraham, of having received the covenant, of having received the law. We have these things, therefore we are good. Right, and they were resting in the wrong things because these, the covenant and the law, were not meant to justify people. They were meant to point us to the coming of the Lord Jesus 
who was the fulfillment of the covenant, who satisfied the law's demands. And so they had wrongly understood and thereby wrongly understanding had despised the covenant of God. I mean, I can give you an example of one of the ways we do this today. This is happening, I would imagine, every week in Christian churches everywhere throughout this country. Okay, there are these times, and it it happens like when we gather for youth conventions or retreats, right, uh, where churches are gathering people together or gathering teenagers together, and they get together that last night of the retreat, and you know what they do, right? They, they're they're going to tell a story that's either scary or emotional. Sometimes it's both scary and emotional, right? And they're going to, you, you play the music, you do the thing, and then what you're getting is you're going to get the hands to go up and the people to come down, and they are going to say the prayer, and then they will be saved, right? And, that, and then they keep track of the numbers, and look how good we did at, at getting people saved, and, and, and that's it. And the reason I tell you it's the very same thing is because I run into people every week who are living in unbelief, and their life says they are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I ask them about this, this incongruency, they say, well, no, no, I'm good, Right? I, I, back in 10th grade, I did that thing, sleep, you know, Christian sleepaway camp. I said the prayer. I went down front. I raised my hand. I'm good. Right? And it's the very same thing. It's presuming on the riches of God's kindness because it assumes that because you've done something or because there's some sort of standing that you have that you have no moral culpability and you have no uh, role in this relationship and there is nothing that is demanded of you and you have done the thing that you need to do, therefore you are saved. And it, it disregards the need for the gospel, for the saving work of Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit, and the fruit that is produced in the life of the believer that is the evidence that God has indeed done this work. And so there's a presumption on the riches of God's kindness. Let me ask you a question. Do you take God's goodness lightly? Do you take it for granted? Do you assume that because God is good that he won't judge your sin and so you've just lived in moral apathy or you've just been okay with unrighteousness? Do you, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? It's a very important question. Let me tell you, if that's your mindset, listen, that, that belittles the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, Okay? That diminishes the power of the cross because it's essentially saying a good God will not judge sin, therefore I'm good with him. We're good to go. I'm in church sometimes. I take the Lord's Supper sometimes. I'm good, right? But, but the reality is you're not good. Do you, do you believe that those who practice such things will not experience the judgment of God? The reality is you need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need repentance in your life. You need to come in faith. And to have salvation, you need his blood to cover you. And if that's true, the Spirit of God is at work in your heart. There will be outward evidence. This is the promises of Scripture. Let's not diminish then the work of Jesus Christ, satisfying the wrath of God on the cross. Let me, let me just close with this. We're getting long here. Uh, you might ask the question, what's the law and the covenant for? If the Jews have misunderstood the law and the covenant and they believe that these things justify them, what are they for, okay? Well, think about the law. You think about the law um, and you think about verse three this morning. Do you suppose, oh man, that's all of us, do you suppose that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? The law is supposed to point us to our need. We are supposed to read the law and we're supposed to realize 
that we cannot be justified, that we cannot obey, that we are not righteous, that no matter how much we want it, and we don't want it, but no matter how much we want it, we will not live according to God's righteous commands. The law is given so that we realize we have a need. And so the, the Jew and, and the Jewish Christian and the, and the righteous person probably misunderstood the law, okay? The law is not meant to justify us. The law is meant to expose our hearts, right? And if you don't believe me, you're saying, okay, well, I don't know what, you know, I've never experienced that. Or maybe you think you're good with God because you live a pretty good life. You know what you need to do? Go ahead and pick up Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Go ahead and read them. Read all the way through, and I want you to read the law and meditate upon it, and then come back and tell me, do you think you stand right before God? Do you think that by your own laurels, you are not under the judgment, wrath, and condemnation of the living God? Do you really believe you can do those things? Okay? So that's the law. The law was uh, meant to expose our need. Then the covenant, the covenant of God's mercy and grace. What's the covenant meant to do? Well, again, look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I mean, that, we didn't have to guess on that one, okay? Repentance, the covenant of God, his mercy that he demonstrated to his people, is meant to lead them to repentance. And you might be asking, well, well how does that work? Okay, it works like this. We see the law, we see our need. We feel desperate. We feel like we have no hope. We feel like we're under condemnation. We don't know where to go. We say, oh God, I need a miracle. I'm broken. There's something in my heart that doesn't work. I cannot do the things I want to do. The righteousness that I should pursue is the very thing that I do not pursue, right? I'm broken. And then when we look to God in his covenant with us, we say, wait a second. He was gracious. He was gracious with Abraham. He was gracious with Moses. He was gracious with David. He forgave him of sin. He, was, he is gracious with his people. We're meant to see those things, my need and the covenant of God. And the one who, in whose heart the spirit of God is working, that person says, oh, how beautiful is the grace of God and it leads me to repentance. I want to confess my sin. And I want to say to him, I am wretched sinner, and I need your grace. You see, these things, the covenant and the law, they were not meant to justify people. They are but the foundation that God is building, and it's not a, he's not building it in a people or in a process. He's building it in his son, Jesus Christ. The law and the covenant were the preparatory work for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior. In exposing our need and in leading us to repentance, it was meant to draw us to the thing that would be built on the foundation, not to rest on this, but to say what is coming and how will it satisfy me with God and how beautiful will it be when need and repentance and covenant and law are met and consumed in one person, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so that's what's happening in Romans chapter 2. Paul's exposed the brokenness of the human terrain. He has pointed us to the foundation of the law and the covenant. And he has told us these things, they do not save you. You being Abraham's seed or you attending church or participating in the Lord's Supper or you being baptized, this does not save you. Having said the prayer does not save you. Being covered by the blood of Christ being joined with him in faith, having received his righteousness and your sin being taken on the cross, that's what will save you and make you right with God. This is only the preparation for the good news. 
And so do not rest in your own works, your own tradition, or your own things. Rest on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's the message of Romans. That's where the rest of this book is going. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in him, we have salvation. And we ask our heavenly Father that you would show us our great need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be at work here this morning through the preaching of the word, through the reading of your holy word, through our prayer, through our singing, through the celebration of these sacraments that you would be at work in all of this, our Lord and our God, to show us our need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Father, this morning that you would bless, encourage, challenge, exhort, grow our faith in you, and help us to rest in you alone. We love you, and it's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen.